Uh, well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm very excited that I'm being live-streamed. It's a new experience for me. So welcome to you all, and welcome to everybody else out there in the ether who is, um, who is listening. I'm obviously, obviously always thrilled to um, give a lecture for Gresham College, and um, I have to say, though, that I am a little bit anxious tonight. I was rather alarmed when uh, Valerie asked me to give a lecture about the River Thames, not only because it's such an absolutely colossally large subject, but also because for, I think, for this audience, it might be quite a familiar one. And so I've been racking my brains to think how I could say something that would be really new and interesting and get a new angle on the river this evening. And what I've decided to do is give a slightly experimental lecture, if that's all right, Valerie. Um, um, I'm going to be talking about the Thames and its architecture, of course, but what I want to do it, I want to see if I can do it exclusively through the eyes of those people who, over the centuries, have recorded it in pen, pencil, ink and paint, starting in the 15th century and coming right up to the present day. And I found this a, an extremely interesting and actually rather revealing exercise, because what it shows is that as the nature of London has changed, so the way it has been recorded changed, and that recording in itself has helped fashion people's image and understanding of the city. So tonight we will obviously be looking at the physicality of the river and the buildings around it, but also I shall be making some observations about what those buildings and the way uh, the river changed and how, th how these things uh, contributed to the evolving image of London. You know, no matter how uh, much we know about London and its history, it's still hard, I think, to take our minds right the way back to the reason why this place was first founded. But it is, of course, an inescapable fact that the reason we are here tonight is because of the River Thames. It was the Thames that encouraged the Romans to settle here in AD 43. It was the Thames that provided their drinking water. It provided their sanitation. And most importantly, it provided the route for their trade and therefore their prosperity. The Romans built the first port of London. And since then, I think with very little interruption, London has remained a major trading centre. Long before the great docks were built in the 19th century, the Pool of London was already the hub of European and eventually world trade. And these facts, all of them, are fundamental to London's existence. As we shall see this evening, the Thames' importance has been and remains multifaceted. Until the 17th century, it was the transport artery of the capital. Roads were narrow, dirty, crowded, poorly maintained, and often impassable. To get from one part of London to another, really the only practical way, if you were going east-west, or in some parts north-south too, uh, was by using the river. And we also have to remember, and this is a fundamental fact so easy to forget, that there was only one bridge. If you wanted to cross to the other side of the Thames at any other point than London Bridge, you had to take a boat. And this total reliance on river transport for moving east, west, north or south meant that the river was crowded with vessels carrying people and goods. And the watermen had a stranglehold over the economy and smooth running of London. They plied their, their trade uh, night and day to keep the river moving. So, it is not surprising that when the first artists turn to depict this great city, the Thames was omnipresent. 
This is one of the very first images we have that captures London and its river. It's a late 15th century miniature found in the poems of Charles, Duke of Orléans, who you see here um, incarcerated um, in the Tower of London. But much more importantly for our purposes this evening, this isn't only the earliest depiction of the tower, it is the earliest depiction of the river. And we can see here this incredibly um, interesting and accurate view. The artist has illustrated very carefully the effect of the constraint caused by the narrow arches of London Bridge, showing the, the rapids that were effectively created under the bridge that had to be shot by the watermen in their wherries. But this view that was taken in about 1500 can be supplemented by the work of the Antwerp artist, um, Anthony van den Wingarder. Between 1539 and 1544, he produced 14 large pen and ink sketches of uh, London between Westminster and Greenwich, which are now in the Ashmolean Museum. This work was never engraved in his lifetime. It was commissioned by uh, Philip of Spain to create a great mural of uh, London to paint on the walls of the Spanish royal palaces. But uh, this commission, as far as we know, was never completed, and therefore Vingarda's work constitutes the earliest known attempt at a detailed topographical study of London, recording everything, the monastic foundations, royal palaces, courtier mansions, warehouses, wharves, and centre stage in all of this uh, is the river. Vingarda is the first London artist who gives us any real understanding of the topography of the river and its extraordinary importance for the city. And his drawings, as you can see, and you've got St Paul's Cathedral in the middle of here, um, tell us a huge amount of Lon about London in the early 16th century. But Vingarda is also important because he begins to focus, uh, uh, move our focus from the city because his views encompassed all the royal palaces, both on the Thames and off it. And so here we have his fantastic drawing of Hampton Court. Taken from the river, uh, this drawing is it's about this long. It's a really, really big thing. And uh, what it shows us is the intimate relationship that Hampton Court had with the Thames. Because this structure here, the Thames Watergate, uh, a large building which contains steps which led um, up uh, from water level up into it and allowed the King's Barge to be rowed downriver from um, uh, Westminster um, and more inside this to allow the King and the Queen and his chosen friends to dismount in the dry, enter this building and then uh, move via um, passage, covered passages through the gardens up to the palace. And this uh, Watergate you see here is just one of uh, maybe 30 or 40 such Watergates that dotted the riverside from Westminster through the city. Every major house along the river uh, from the Middle Ages up until the Civil War had such a water entrance. Now, <coughs> Vingarda stands alone in the 16th century as a chronicler of London and the Thames. But his mantle was inherited in the 17th century by Wenceslas Holler. 
he was the second person to create a great panorama of the city. The hiring by the Earl of Arundel of Holler comes at a turning point in the recording of the image of London. (coughs) Holler entered the service of Arlington soon after they had met in Prague uh, in 1635. And he was settled at his patron's residence, Arlington House, which was one of the Strand Palaces with a river frontage. At the time that um, Holler took up residence in London, the topographical scene was still dominated by foreigners, particularly the Dutch and the Flemish, all of whom favoured depicting London from the top of what is now Southwark Cathedral, with the Thames running in front of it like a ribbon. Now, this example (coughs) I show you here, which is very typical, uh, is one that's actually here in the Museum of London. Now, the prominence of this view from Southwark Cathedral, there is Southwark Cathedral here, um, was almost certainly, I think, because this was the principal point of entry uh, to, to the capital from visitors who were coming up from Kent. So if you landed in Dover, you'd get uh, uh, um, transported from Dover up through Kent and you would enter London through Southwark. It was also important because it was in Southwark that most painters settled because uh, the city of London, of course, was controlled by the monopolistic craft guilds and you couldn't establish yourself as a painter in London because you would be, uh, it would be illegal, and so you stayed in Southwark. And so Southwark became this great view of London, catching the great, uh, the great sweep of the river in front of the city. Now, statistically, the number of early views from this angle is absolutely staggering, and when Holler first came to London, it was from this angle that he drew it. And this is uh, his view um, in 1647, his panorama. Um, And to create this, uh, Holler made um, hundreds of individual sketches and drawings, most of which um, are are now lost. But a careful examination of this uh, view uh, reveals how extraordinarily accurate it was. In fact, it's made up of six individual printed plates. And just to go into a bit of detail, This is one of those plates, the one on the furthest right. So we're looking at the plate here. Um, And you can see um, the extraordinarily detailed topographical um, observation that he brought. But more importantly, uh, this evening, you can see that the river absolutely dominates the view. It is the principal source of interest here, crowded with all these boats here in the uh, Pool of London. And the imagery, and here you have Neptune um, sitting on this great, uh, uh, this great plinth here with the River Thames pouring out of one of his big jars. Um, the river is the focus of this great long view, as it was known. But it was also Holler who made the first image of London from the west, standing on the roof of Arlington House. And he followed this up immediately after the the Civil War with this astonishing bird's eye view of the Strand and Covent Garden. This is a completely new way of looking at London and the river. And in my view, this is the great tragic lost image of the 17th century. It is uh, the only surviving impression of what must have been a much bigger project to map 
the whole of the city in minute detail. And of course, we only have this plate, and so we can't see how the river would have been included. But here you can see the, the sweep of the river uh, in front of um, Somerset House and Arundel House um, nearby. So the emergence of new viewpoints of London gradually began to change perceptions of the river and of the city. By 1600, all painters wishing to depict London showed it as a water-based city rather than one that was essentially land-based. Uh, and until the 1720s, the presence of the River Thames seemed so essential to painters that the majority of close-up views of the capital were all centred on waterfront sites. During the 17th century, views of the great London buildings, the Royal Palaces, St Paul's Cathedral, Lambeth Palace, are all from the river. So, let's have a look at a few. Here is Richmond Palace. We've gone right up um, uh, stream here to, uh, to Richmond. And you can see the Royal Palace here. You can see a sort of social scene in the front. But absolutely dominating of the composition is the, the ribbon of the river that runs through it. This is in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. Here um, is Somerset House uh, by Cornelius Boll, painting dating from about 1660. It's in Dulwich Picture Gallery. This, of course... Uh, in 1660 is the, uh, the House of the Queens of England, the Palace of the Queens of England, an incredibly important building. But again, the, the vast majority of this painting is dominated by the river. And even uh, at the end of the century, this is uh, a, um, a painting that was taken in about 1705 um, by Niff. This is Niff's painting of Windsor Castle. You can see, again, the image is entirely dominated by the snaking River Thames, uh, dominated by pictures of barges um, carrying goods um, upstream, ca carrying goods westwards. And so it is extremely difficult during this period to find close-up views of people, the river, um, streets, quarters, and landmarks of the capital. The, 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 the Thames actually dominates. Here is an unusual exception. Uh, this is this fantastic view of the River Thames frozen over um, in front of London Bridge, uh, dating from the freezing cold year of 1677. Some of you here may remember it. Um, uh, uh, and very unusually, we, um, we see uh, uh, Londoners skating, snowballing. This fellow, I'm not quite sure what he's doing, he's shooting a, a, a bird, probably one of the, getting rid of one of the pigeons, um, uh, and you can see a sort of social scene, but that uh, uh, way of using the river as a way of portraying a social scene is um, quite unusual. It does give us some wonderful topographical details. It, of course, gives us uh, London Bridge. It gives us what is now Southwark Cathedral. And it gives us Swan Steps, one of the many, many series of steps on the side of the river that allowed you to go down and take your uh, barge at any time of tide, because, of course, the tides might be up here or the tide might be uh, down there. Um, uh, and, of course, the, the, the important point to note about this is that the river um, froze uh, upstream of London Bridge because the narrowness and the constriction that the, the bridge um, created slowed down the river enough for it to freeze um, um, upstream. Below stream, um, it, didn't, it, it didn't, in fact, freeze. 
So we're in the 17th century, and uh, the Great Fire of London uh, provided uh, an extraordinary challenge to artists who wished to continue to depict the capital. There were a whole series of paintings that illustrate uh, the disaster, and of course, uh, most of them uh, are taken from um, or next door to the river. Here is a wonderful painting of the disaster, again in the Museum of London's collection here in this building. Uh, This was painted um, from a boat, or the viewpoint of a boat, uh, in the middle of um, uh, the the Pool of London in front of Tower Wharf, sometime between 8 and uh, 9 o'clock in the evening of Thursday, the 14th of September, 1666. And as far as we can judge, what it shows is amazingly accurate, really quite a rarity from a 17th century view. Um, The artist has shown the way that the arches and the bridge um, were, in fact, irregular, which they were, and that they were pointed, not round, which they were. He also shows details of the Tower of London with extraordinary um, accuracy. I mean, even Holler, the master of detail in his long view, misinterprets the shape of the towers in the White Tower that this painter gets right in the midst of all this catastrophe and conflagration. Well, as today, one of the most animated topics of conversation and one of the perhaps biggest frustrations of being a Londoner was transport. The invention of the Pomeranian carriage in the mid-17th century had caused a revolution of transportation in London. Suddenly, for the first time, it became comfortable to travel by coach thanks to the new suspension of the Pomeranian carriages. Before these things were invented, if you got into a carriage, you would basically be beaten to a pulp as it went over the rucks and ruckles in the roads. But the Pomeranian carriage, um, um, slung on large straps of leather, allowed you to gracefully knock your head against the side (laughs) of the carriage rather than just being hurled against it violently. First, the monarchy then the nobility, and then the gentry began to move around London by road. And as a consequence, the great houses of the nobility were redesigned to have their principal entrances on the landward side so that visitors could arrive by carriage. And the importance of the old river water gates, and we looked at one a few moments ago um, at Hampton Court, um, rapidly declined. In fact, the water gates were Um, very quickly uh, relegated to become ways of getting uh, uh, goods in uh, rather than the principal uh, way uh, that you came in all your fancy finery to visit uh, the the owners. This change between uh, water and land transport set up the great 17th century battle between the watermen and the carriage owners. Rather like the RMT Union, the watermen could hold London to ransom. But the coming of the carriage fatally weakened their influence. Or did it? Paintings like this one, the Thames at Horse Ferry, painted 1706-10, again here in the Museum of London, shows that even for the owner of a coach and pair, you were at the mercy of the watermen because we have to remember there was still only one bridge. And if you wanted to get your uh, carriage across the river at Westminster, 
uh, or here at Lambeth, and this is at the bottom of Horse Ferry Road, which of course is why Horse Ferry Road is called Horse Ferry Road, you had to take your horse um, on the Horse Ferry um, across to Lambeth Palace. And here you see the carriage precariously um, balancing. In fact, this is a carriage that has come from Lambeth um, and is just about to get off uh, in Westminster. And you can still see the, uh, at this end of the river um, the, the huge amount of traffic that's still going on. I'm rather intrigued by the uh, naked bathers here <laughs> on this punt um, who, who seem to be quite a feature. Um, knowing uh, that the River Thames was not only a source of drinking water but also the main sewer of London, I think bathing in it perhaps was not so much fun. But anyway, they obviously thought it was. Well, what particularly, I think, focused artists' attention on the subject of the river during the 18th century was the construction of new bridges. Since the building of London Bridge in the 12th century, uh, as we've observed, there was only one of them. But in response to growing criticisms about the overcrowding of London Bridge, the capital acquired a further four bridges during the Georgian period, respectively Putney Bridge, opened in 1729. Westminster Bridge, built between 1739 and 1750. Blackfriars Bridge, between 1760 and 1769. And Battersea Bridge, in 1771-2. But the erection of Westminster Bridge, I think, was the major public building project of mid-18th century London. The need for an alternative conduit for commerce, trans, uh, transport and uh, communication to the dilapidated and overcrowded London Bridge had been voiced for years. However, in the end, it was a collection of civic-minded and commercially astute members of the Westminster elite who organised political action on the matter. Meeting regularly at the Horn Tavern in New Palace Yard, they succeeded in prov provoking uh, parliamentary legislation. This society of gentlemen, as they were called, lobbied for and helped to ensure the passage of a bridge-building bill in 1736. A body of nearly 200 commissioners was set up to supervise proceedings, and in 1738, work began according to a plan executed uh, by Charles Labelli, a Swiss engineer who subsequently managed the project until its completion in 1750. The scheme for this new bridge met with sustained and vociferous opposition from the beginning. Petitions to the Parliament from the Lord Mayor, the Aldermen and the Commons of the City of London complained that their traditional status as the commercial guardians of the river would be undermined and that trade and jobs would be sucked out um, of the uh, uh, east end of the capital. Uh, you can imagine that the disconsent uh, voiced by our friends, the Thames Waterman, was even more acute. By its defenders, the bridge was described as a testament to a modern ideal of civic enlightenment. For the entrepreneurial aristocrats who created it, it was both a monument to their civic responsibility, but also a flamboyantly modern fixture in the metropolitan environment of commerce. The bridge's uncluttered neo-Palladian design with its gently curved facade, gleaming white Portland stone and subtle neoclassical detail linked it 
to ideas of antique culture, celebrated in terms of patrician value, social order, and physical rationality. The monumental scale of the technological intervention it necessitated dominated the discussion about the bridge as it emerged out of the water. Crowds of people came to stare, and a boating tour around its environs, which temporarily offered a lucrative, if ominous, new business opportunity to the watermen, became an essential part of the polite tourist circuit of the city. Now, it's been established that almost all of Canaletto's early English patrons were commissioners of Westminster Bridge. In particular, the artist executed a series of paintings and drawings for Sir Hugh Smithson, a leading voice in the Society of Gentlemen and an active member of the Board of Commissioners through the project. And here you see that absolutely sensational painting by Canaletto, London seen through an arch of Westminster Bridge. This is his first uh, painting for Smithson, and in it, the artist clearly redeveloped many of the conventions of his Venetian river views, many of which you can see at the moment uh, in the Queen's Gallery, where they are pretty sensationally on show. The city uh, is depicted as an assemblage of architectural landmarks, um, and the importance of the bridge in the view can hardly be overstated. It is the focus of the painting. And what we're looking at here is the timber centering of the bridge onto which the, uh, the stone arches were built. And of course, when the mortar had gone off, the centering was removed. And I absolutely love the way he's included um, a bucket hanging on a piece of string here, just to show that this, this bridge is in the, uh, the, pro the, the process of being um, constructed. Um, and Westminster Bridge, thanks to Canaletto and thanks to the determination of the Society of Gentlemen to promote this great civic act of beautification, uh, spawned a whole school of painting. Uh, and here you see that fantastic painting um, in the Tate Gallery. Uh, this is um, Samuel Scott. Uh, you can see uh, we're now at the sort of finishing touches of the bridge. Again, Echoing Canaletto, this very dramatic view, looking through uh, the, uh, uh, the arches and capturing the, 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 the monuments of um, London in the, um, in, in the background. Um, the bridge uh, became to be a symbol of London's new neoclassical image. And these um, two extraordinary views of the Thames, uh, both in the Royal Collection both by Canaletto, capture this sort of neoclassical view of London in its canonical form. And you can see the way the river is absolutely dominant um, in it. The bright sunlight uh, exposes every detail of the city's topography and suggests a clarity of vision and understanding, indeed a sort of a state of enlightenment for the age of enlightenment uh, um, on these canvases. Nowhere to be seen are London's mists and fogs. This is transparent space and perspective, and you can read these as metaphors of freedom and order. London is shown here as nowhere else as the modern Rome, and St Paul's 
Westminster Abbey and Westminster Bridge are the great monuments of an imperial city. So here is Canaletto again. This is Lord Mayor's Day, painted in 1747. Uh, uh, it's now uh, a, pa- a painting now in Prague. I mean, what a painting. What a painting. And um, what a painting that, that helps you understand the importance of uh, London, uh, the importance to the river uh, 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 of, of London, which is um, really quite extraordinary. Uh, and again, this is um, an imperial uh, city, the Lord Mayor's Barge uh, there in the middle. Um, and surely here, Canaletto was dreaming of the regattas and the ducal festivities in Venice. And I just wonder whether this slightly calls into question the reality of the scene. Um, Maybe, like the Queen's uh, Golden Jubilee, it was actually pouring with rain and everyone was soaking wet. Um, But, of course, Canaletto's viewpoint here, uh, which was chosen by many other painters, was blocked by 1769 by Blackfriars Bridge because uh, bridges continued to be built. And here is William Marlowe's wonderful uh, painting of 1775, taken from that spot. This is now at um, at Yale um, in in America. And the new bridge uh, is in the centre. And for all all intents and purposes, it shows a completely different city to that which was depicted by Canaletto. The colouring is more muted. The river, of course, is emptier. Perhaps all more representative of the everyday light and colour of the Thames riverscape. In the right, um, uh, you can just about see here um, uh, commercial uh, vessels which were not depicted by um, Canaletto. This isn't Canaletto's uh, river of pageantry and light. It is the everyday river of um, life and of labour. And here, ladies and gentlemen, we start to see the gradual but decisive shift in London's image away from this idealised neoclassical capital to the industrial engine house of the world. You see, generally speaking, the more industrial parts of the Thames were not painted by painters of the 18th century as they rather ill-fitted the classical image of this imperial city. But when painters did venture into the shipbuilding heartlands of the river, their focus uh, was not the river itself, nor its architectural setting. It was, uh, sorry, this is, sorry, this is another um, view. I've just uh, missed out. This is another view of William Marlowe. And you, again, you can see the move away from Canaletto um, here. This much um, grittier, much more realistic view of the river. Um, And uh, when they left the central stretches and went to the more industrial areas, painters focused on uh, on the ships. And this is John Cleverley's The Elders um, painting of HMS Buckingham on the stocks at Deptford. A wonderful picture. I suspect the scale of it is probably right. You know, all this stuff here was under the water. And so it probably was um, up that high. An incredible um, and actually typical product of the... 18th century views of the shipyards, which concentrated on uh, ship um, launches. So now it's time to move on from the 18th century. 
And as we do, I want you to notice that what is particularly interesting about early, the early 19th century is the abandonment of the sort of Italian influence in the painting of the capital and a return to the Netherlandish influence that we saw right at the beginning of my talk. There were perhaps two reasons for this. London was now the leading mercantile city of the world. And unlike Italian painting, the Netherlandish school faithfully and proudly recorded industry and commerce. And it was perhaps for this reason that collectors in London in the early 19th century started to buy Dutch works and put them on display. Interest was, I think, particularly stimulated by access to two collections rich in Dutch art, that of the Marquis of Stafford, shown at Cleveland House, and just a little later, the collection of uh, Sir Francis Bourgeois, which was shown in Britain's first purpose-built picture gallery in Dulwich, where you can still, of course, see it today. But in 1814, royal favour was granted to this fashion by the Prince Regent, who bought one of the great uh, uh, one of the greatest, I think, uh, Dutch masterpieces. This is Albert Kuyp's uh, The Passage Boat, boat um, now in the Royal Collection. So there's this move away um, towards the Netherlandish influence. And when we look at uh, Augustus Wall uh, Colcutt's mid-channel view of the Pool of London, painted in 1816, we can see how this work is very clearly, I think, influenced by Kuyp and shows fishermen at work next to something that looks very much like a sort of Dutch barge. The painting is serene, but it hardly, I think, reflects what we know of the Pool of London, which was, at that time, the world's busiest port. For this reason, the Netherlandish influence is seen most strongly and successfully, I think, in paintings of the Thames estuary. And here... The focus of the painter's brush moves from the social and the architectural setting of the Thames to the raw river and sea. Here is Clarkson Stanfield's Tilbury Fort, Winds Against the Tide. This gives us, I think, one of the most dramatic renderings of the Thames estuary. This is a whacking great picture. It's six foot by five foot, and it was presented to the rail pioneer Robert Stevenson on his retirement from the North West Railway. It was finished in 1849 and was exhibited at the Royal Academy, where it was particularly admired for this extraordinary treatment of the um, swell of the river. And in this uh, picture, you capture um, an extraordinary slice of the history of the Thames, because here you see in this um, left-hand corner, a small fishing boat known as a Peter boat. There's another one just up here. You might not be able to see it. But this Peter boat is directly in the path of a massive Thames sailing barge transporting a huge load of hay. Um, the, the Thames barge is tacking into the wind and is on an absolute direct collision course with the Peter boat. And you can see uh, the fishermen... Um, um, here um, shouting, oh, no, this fisherman here, sorry, um, shouting, you know, we're going to be run down. He can't shout, shout motor gives way to sail because they're both sail. Um, and here you've got um, a ferry boat 
going across the river. You've got this huge amount of activity, and the one thing stable in the picture is the great uh, uh, um, gate of Tilbury Fort built for Charles II, this great magnificent fort um, on the site of the place where Queen Elizabeth gave her famous um, and rousing speech uh, for the um, Spanish uh, Armada. Now, the important point about uh, this painting and paintings uh, uh, like it is the deep knowledge of sailing the sea and ships that a painting like this required. Britain was this great naval nation, and London was the headquarters of the, of the, of the, uh, uh, of, of the merchant navy fleet, and obviously, um, uh, with the Pool of London, the Tower of London, of the Royal Navy uh, uh, as well. And Stanfield, like many other painters of his time, uh, were also experienced seamen. In fact, as a young man, he'd worked on Thames Colliers and East Indiamen, and uh, for a short period, he was even in the uh, Royal Navy. So uh, a painter like that would have actually understood the uh, skilled seamanship uh, necessary to um, sail in the squally Thames estuary. But of course, we shouldn't forget that however accurate and precisely observed these sailing vessels were, the power of these paintings lie in the brilliant uh, handling of the raw um, elements of water and wind. Uh, Clarkson Stansfield was a master of capturing the power of the sea, and so, of course, was uh, J.M.W. Turner. Turner, too, was very familiar with the Thames estuary and with the technicalities of shipbuilding. He uh, regularly stayed at Margate and went on boat trips in the estuary to sketch the landscape. And here we have his fishing uh, on the Blythe sand, tide setting in, uh, which is in uh, Tate Gallery now, and it shows the tide coming in over the sandbanks and the fishing boats gather to fish, and in the far distance, uh, the landmass of the Isle of um, Sheppey. And it was on the way back from one of his trips to Margate when Turner uh, spied the Temeraire, the second ship in the line at Trafalgar being towed from Sheerness to the Breaker's Yard at uh, Rotherhithe. Of course, this incredibly famous Thames painting, perhaps almost the most famous of all, uh, in the National Gallery, painted in 1839. And as the great, uh, famous in its day ship makes its slow progress to its grave, the sun sets over the still waters, um, creating this incredibly uh, well-known image, not only of the Thames, but of um, a British uh, warship. But none of this concentration on the Thames estuary and on sailing and on the ships is to say that the magic central uh, London uh, views were um, uh, ignored. And in particular, the bridges continued to exercise an extraordinary fascination for uh, painters and engravers. New bridges were opened with alarming regularity during the 19th century. Vauxhall and Waterloo opened in 1811, Southwark in 1819, Hammersmith in 1827, Chelsea in 1858, Lambeth in 1862, and this is extraordinary, the rapidity that this is happening, Wandsworth and Albert in 1873, and finally, Tower Bridge in 1894. 
And every one of these provided an uh, impetus and an inspiration. Um, so the Strand Bridge, now named Waterloo Bridge, was unquestionably the grandest and most important uh, bridge opening of the early 19th century. And here we have Constable's astonishing view um, of the um, opening day. Um, his largest, his most ambitious work, again, it's absolutely enormous, um, and it was only uh, exhibited 15 years after the uh, actual event that took place on the 18th of June, 1817. Uh, this is, is about seven foot that I mention here, and what you see in the foreground here is uh, a, a royal barge, and George IV is just about to uh, get into it. Sorry, the Prince Regent is just about to get into it. And here we have a direct connection back to Canaletto. But this is not Canaletto's view. This is not the Venetian bright sunlight. This is dirty, grimy, smoky London, a place of ceaseless turmoil and activity and industry and energy and activity. This is a place that we recognise as London, a tough industrial city, not a place of untrammeled and perhaps imagined elegance and peace. A completely different style of work to Constable's, with nearly the same uh, viewpoint, is Charles Dean's uh, painting of the newly completed Waterloo Bridge, painted only four years later in 1821. This shows a much uh, stiller river with a, a fashionable uh, party here uh, about to embark on a boat trip, perhaps to go upriver to admire the beauties of the uh, new bridge. This, though, of course, is still uh, uh, the river of industry um, and um, the uh, uh, watermen who you see um, here you see one of them, but there are others in, um, in the painting here. There's another one waiting down here. The uh, watermen were, of course, the people who were threatened by the buildings of these new bridges and the uh, lifting of the, the crossing tolls. But their livelihoods, amazingly, continued into the Victorian period and were finally, really, only swept away with the creation of the embankments. Now, the embankments were just one of a number of changes along the river that during the third quarter of the 19th century began to transform the opportunities presented to painters and the image of the industrial capital. The Thames embankments were, of course, designed and executed by Sir Joseph Bazalgette, the chief engineer to the Metropolitan Board of Works. Built between 1868 and 1874, they were, as you know, named Victoria, Albert and Chelsea. And they extended for the length of about three and a half miles. And their principal effect was to reclaim about 32 acres of mud and foreshore, some of the most painted parts of the river landscape and the parts of the river that emphasised the dirty, muddy, industrial nature of it. So... Here you have John O'Connor's view of York Watergate before the construction of the embankment. Uh, this is a reasonably high tide. At low tide, 
Um, all this area here, of course, is mud and slime um, and dirt. And here is it's extraordinary survival. It still survives, of course, in the uh, embankment gardens today. You can go and see it with a funny little um, a half moon shape of water around it, one of the last surviving um, uh, um, Thames water gates. But here uh, it stands before the construction of the uh, embankment. And here is O'Connor's view of more or less the same area uh, after uh, uh, um, the cons- their construction. This is painted in 1873. And this scene celebrates uh, the prosperity of the city in the, the well-dressed people who are parading up and down this absolutely new embankment. Look how small the trees are here, all just recently um, uh, uh, planted. Um, these are spectators in a modern, well-administered, clean London. And here you have order and empire represented in a detachment of guards marching along the recently uh, uh, um, built road. And here we have um, the ultimate portrayal of Victorian confidence in what was now not an imagined imperial city, it was truly an imperial city, a place improved by money, by know-how, a place improved by technical innovation, epitomised by this this road, which, of course, contained also a sewer and an underground railway. Following the completion of the embankments, the uh, Victorian Art Journal remarked, and I quote, the opening of the Thames embankment has for the first time convinced many of us to the claims uh, of London to architectural beauty. But the other great change to the Victorian uh, riverscape uh, in the Victorian period was, of course, the construction of the Houses of Parliament. In 1834, there was devastating fire at the Old Palace of Westminster, which destroyed almost everything apart from Westminster Hall. And this, of course, led to the famous competition to design the new home, which was won by Charles Barry. Foundation stone was laid in 1840, And finally, uh, the the clock tower containing uh, the the bell, Big Ben, which we all know about now, silenced by Theresa May, the least of her crimes, um, (laughs) was uh, finally completed in 1858. And both the fire that destroyed uh, the um, old palace and the finished building were tremendous inspiration to painters. And, of course, we have these two incredible views, one of which I show you, my favourite one here, um, this view by Turner of the destruction of the Palace of Westminster uh, with Westminster Bridge, an absolute, complete uh, work of genius. And then David Roberts, that immaculate, immaculate painter, um, uh, recording uh, the the new palace as it's completed, uh, a painting done in 1834. So the Victorians created a new riverscape. And this riverscape was uh, uh, one that was recorded by a new generation of painters. And one of the most famous painters who came to record it, and the painter who perhaps uh, made it most famous, was, of course, uh, Claude Monet. And here we see this painting in the National Gallery, uh, uh, entitled The Thames Below Westminster, painted in about 1872. This seems incredibly familiar to us. But what we have to remember was that when Monet painted it, this was brand new. Everything in this view was new. 
The embankment had opened the previous year. Westminster Bridge in 1872, the, the new bridge in 1872, because of course the, the original one was replaced, the Houses of Parliament in 1858, and St. Thomas's Hospital, which you can see on the left-hand side, that blob over there, um, over there um, in 1871. This is an entirely new London that Monet is painting. And with Monet, we see that during the last quarter of the 19th century, there's a, an emergence of a whole new set of painterly concerns that affected uh, the way that the river was uh, depicted. The pursuit of the real, uh, uh, the reality of the river and the reality of, of, of what painters were seeing led high Victorian artists to devise opposing methods of representation. And we can see perhaps this polarisation of techniques in the work of two contemporary French painters, both of whom painted the River Thames. They are Monet and James Tissot. So here is Monet's uh, uh, The Thames and the Houses of Parliament. And here is Tissot's On the Thames. <laughs> They're contemporaries from the same country. Now, although these works look very, very different, they both share the same subject, a perspective view of the London riverside. The predominance of figures in this painting by Tissot, almost to the exclusion of the river, invites us to consider the almost total absence of people in the Impressionist views uh, of London. And here the favoured elements were the river and the parks. The Impressionist fascination with the river was crucial, I think, in maintaining the Thames as a centre of painterly concern for the next 60 years. Uh, this is all river and all light, and uh, Tissot's painting is uh, full of painstaking details of costumes, a dog, a picnic hamper, bottles of champagne. You know, I mean, it's all there to be seen. Um, this is indeed full of what Ruskin was to call the mere colour photographs of vulgar society. <laughs> now, we don't know whether Monet met James McNeil Whistler during his time in London in 1870 to 71. But it's certain that the Thames views of the two painters share certain characteristics, particularly these great sort of liquid sweeps of paint uh, and sky uh, and river. Uh, Whistler used to be rowed up and down Chelsea Reach at night by his assistant. And this is Whistler's uh, uh, painting. He called it a nocturne, blue and gold, old Battersea Bridge is its title. And the picture gives us a view of the bridge uh, looking through the arches. This is the same uh, technique as Canaletto developed at uh, Chelsea Old Church, of course, down there in the distance. But of course, what dominates is the river, the mist and the looming industrial structure of the bridge, defining uh, London at that magic moment. Philip Gilbert Hamilton, writing in 1879 in relation to Whistler's um, uh, um, paintings and etchings of the river, uh, wrote this, and I'm quoting. The shores of the Thames in London used to be picturesque. And the new embankment will remove much material that is interesting to artists. But the picturesque of the London River is, after all, nothing but a more entertaining variety of the universal London ugliness. The Thames is beautiful from Maidenhead to Kew, but not from Battersea to Sheerness. If beauty were the only province of art, 
neither painters nor etchers would find anything to occupy them in the foul stream that washes the London wharfs. But even ugliness itself may be valuable if only it has sufficient human interest and fortuitous variety of lines. This is the capturing of the real raw uh, Thames of the early Uh, of the late 19th and early 20th century. And here is Whistler's assistant, William Graves, painting Hammersmith Bridge on boat race day. And here, in a completely different genre, a picture painted only one year later by William Holman Hunt. It's a view of London Bridge on the night of the marriage of the Prince and Princess of Wales. These two paintings show that the central sections of the river straightened up walled in and regimented by the Victorians, when they had human interest and continual activity, still provided an attraction for painters. Just look at the excitement of Graves' painting, with a sense of desperation to view the race, the spectators terrifyingly watching on the suspension chains up here. I mean, absolutely mind-boggling health and safety nightmare. Um, And beneath... Uh, Here, the river, just a single boat um, moving past. And similarly, um, Holman Hunt showing the bridge packed with humanity, straining to see the royal family. The London of Monet, Whistler and Holman Hunt was at the very centre of the world, the richest, largest and most uh, powerful city on earth. But only 50 years later, it was on its knees, pummeled and pounded by German bombs and struggling to regain its economic power. But the port was still functioning and the Thames was still an economic artery. This uh, is a painting uh, by the Austrian expressionist Oskar Kokoschka, completed in 1952. I show it to you uh, in particular because he uh, reflects on this painting and his London paintings in his memoirs. And this is what he writes, and I'll quote it to you. During the months spent in London, I painted 11 pictures in all, mostly views of the Thames, my Thames. Those were still the days when the merchandise of the whole world was shipped up this river. London was still a mother city, as the ancient Greek cities had been, from which the surplus population spread out across the world. It was the metropolis of world trade, the warehouse of colonies in all five continents, where the wind did not blow, as it did in Vienna, from the Russian steppes, but from all points of the compass, um, all at once. But within a decade of Kokoschka uh, writing that entry, the port of London had gone, and the reason for the river was lost. Nobody now used it for transport, for either people or for goods. It was really an interruption in London life rather than the centre of it. Cars and buses saw bridges as obstacles to speedy locomotion and not things of beauty. Meanwhile, the water became an economic asset for developers. It became the place where you could build a block of flats and Ed add several noughts onto the asking price because it looked out a stretch of muddy water. The the river gradually became walled in by sheets of glass 
and concrete. Those are just random photographs of our beloved River Thames today. Well, thank goodness for the Thames Festival. Although increasingly blighted by brutal oversized buildings that wall the river in on both sides, I think Londoners today love the Thames more than perhaps at any time since the 18th century. The Thames Festival, the cries for a garden bridge, the success of river taxes, the Millennium Bridge, that lovely slender bridge, the first bridge to be built for a century, the Thames walkways, increasing pedestrianisation along the banks, all go some way to compensate for the rape of the Thames banks in the central section, which I show you on the screen. However, though, uh, will London uh, and its river, in particularly the river, remain an attraction to painters and other artists? I'm not sure that this bulk of commercial glass and steel flats have really yet succeeded in capturing anyone's uh, imagination. And I do slightly fear that the long history of celebrating uh, and recording the river in paint is over, or perhaps in abeyance. But London and its river have always had a way of bouncing back. And I hope that my slightly bleak view of uh, the future um, is lifted and uh, people will start to record uh, the wonders of the river again in paint. And uh, in maybe 10 or 15 years' time, if I give this lecture again, I can show you some really great paintings of the river as it is today. Thank you very much.